We're in bad era of the United States. It's like we've lost our direction of what it means to be a democracy and what it means to be inclusive. The American dream is for everybody. It's not for middle-aged white males. It's, it's for everybody. Why are we not living up to our own values as a country? That's what I do. That's what I say to people. It's That's what keeps me going. That's why I've been doing this for 40 years, 42 years, actually. I need to keep it going. It's my mission in life. Welcome to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground, where we talk about supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity with everyone from academics, historians, and business leaders. With your hosts, Chloe Guidry-Reed and Adam Moore, you'll hear inspiring stories and practical tips for overcoming challenges and gaining insight into supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity. Let's dive in. This episode is brought to you by Higher Ground. Higher Ground is a technology company whose mission is to bridge the wealth gap through access to procurement opportunities. Higher Ground is making the enterprise ecosystem more viable, profitable, and competitive by clearing the path for minority-led, women-led, LGBT-led, and veteran-led small businesses to contribute to the global economy as suppliers to enterprise organizations. For more information on getting started, please visit us at higherground.io. That's H-I-R-E-G-R-O-U-N-D.io. Now on to the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. I'm Matt Colicello, and for Adam Moore, here with my co-host, Chloe Guidry-Reed. In today's episode, we're joined by Leonard Greenhalsh, Professor of Management and Director of Programs for Minority and Women-Owned Businesses at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. Professor Greenhalsh is a legendary force in the world of minority business advocacy. He is the co-author of the seminal work, Minority Business Success, Refocusing on the American Dream. Professor Greenhalsh is also the recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award from the U.S. Minority Business Development Agency, as well as the Robert M. Stewart Leadership Award from the National Minority Supplier Development Council. Leonard Greenhalsh, Len, welcome to Breaking Barriers. Thank you. Len, we are so excited to have you. Thanks, Chloe. Thanks, Matt. Personally, just want to tell you how I was super excited to have you on the episode because I have read several of your books, one being Minority Business Success, and really, really enjoyed it. So I think we can start off with you telling us a little bit about who you are and the work you're doing at Top. So it was a puzzling question for me because people are always giving me awards and expecting me to speak at events about I'm just doing my job. I, I love that, though. I, I do what I'm capable of doing to make a difference in the world is, is what I do. I fashioned a niche for myself for the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth, and that involves doing where my, what my real passion is about, which is seeing people with who have been denied an opportunity to participate in the American dream and say, why is this happening and what do we do about it? Why are, this is not the province of white males. What Women are more than 50% the U.S. population. The, you look at their ascendancy in colleges and in business now. Women are really good at doing things. Yes, they are. I don't want to start a gender war here, but, but if, you, if you look at minorities too, they've been excluded in the U.S. in a way that is inconsistent with my upbringing. As you can tell, I speak funny. 
that's because I have an English accent. I was brought up in England. And our approach to minorities is so different. What I discovered when I came to the United States, understand Great Britain, it used to be a colonial power, which I'm not proud of, but was. So if we saw uh, somebody who was a person of color on the street, that would be part of the Commonwealth. And we wouldn't think lesser of that person because he or she was black or brown or obviously Asian descent or, or wherever. We'd say this is part of the Commonwealth. It's somebody who came from someplace else. But when I got to America in the late 50s, I was in Washington, D.C., and I saw drinking fountains and restrooms that were labeled whites only. I mean, what is that about? Completely inconsistent with my value system. So I ended up doing something about it. That's kind of where I'm coming from. I love that. And so when you decided, I'm going to do something about it, what was your first sort of step towards it? Was education always the path? How did you... Think about how should I tackle this problem and address it? Well, as a college kid, I was involved in protests and with the NAACP and things that college kids did without broad understanding of what are the dynamics of the system that hold people down that ought to be participating more. In, in the U.S., women and minorities, why couldn't I drink from the same drinking fountain or sit at a lunch counter or use the same restroom. This is crazy. So it just didn't make sense to me why, why things were happening. So, Chloe, to answer your question, how did I get involved? I was a purchasing manager after, I think that was after the bachelor's degree. I've got several degrees. And we were buying primarily from white men. Okay. And that didn't make a lot of sense to me, but it was a job. And then I went back for a master's degree after that job, became a consultant, uh, and then went to Cornell for a PhD where they said, look, you've got management experience. Can you run this project we've got, which is about what happens to the unemployed when they get laid off from their jobs? And most of the people getting laid off were minorities and women and uh, Vietnam vets back then were, were quite differently from the way we're treating our Middle East vets now. So I was dealing with this population and I'm multicultural. I've been in more than 50 countries. I've lived first part of my life overseas. I have an appointment in the UK. So Cultural transitions don't bother me. I'm very comfortable dealing with people who are quite different from who I am. And somehow I kind of fell into this role at Cornell. And then when I came to Dartmouth, I spent the first few years doing research. And, you know, it's published or perished. Dartmouth, the Ivy League schools are very demanding in terms of your research productivity. You have to be creating the knowledge, not just passing it on. You don't use somebody else's cases and textbook. That's why, you know, I've, I've written so much stuff. I've got about 150 publications. And I'm flattered, Chloe, that you've read one of them twice. So that's yes, good. it was very good. So for all of our listeners who have not read Minority Business Success, even if you're not a minority business, it is such a great piece of literature and deeply weaves in just policy and how the outcomes affect our entire economy. This isn't just a minority issue. And I love how you set the stage in that book for that. Yeah. The point is, if women are 50% 
of our workforce and our entrepreneurial system, and minorities are going to be 50%. If you put minority men and women of all genders together, you're talking about 70 to 75% of the country is being mistreated by the privileged 25%. That's, that's not right. It's not even smart. Everybody suffers when we do it that way. Absolutely. Yeah, I just wanted to ask something I'm curious about as I hear you speak is just that gap between what the best research is telling us and the policies that end up getting made and influencing how our economy runs and how businesses operate in our economy. Can you talk about kind of what maybe the, the broad strokes of your research and then how how policy somehow differs, how how it, it what we could do to breed, bridge the gap between what research tells us and then what ends up happening in the stewardship of our economy. Okay, so Chloe's an economics grad, so she can chime in here. The basic thing is that we're an entrepreneurial economy as a capitalistic system, but it's being run in a biased way. And the theory says the best people will rise to the top. There's a number of words for that, but that's that, that's what it's supposed to be. But it's not a level playing field for people who are female or color or LGBTQ or disabled or veterans. It's, it's different for them. It's an uphill challenge to be successful in this economy when it really shouldn't be. There's nothing magical about being in business. But if the odds are stacked against you, they get stacked against you in, in some ways we can talk about, then how do you reverse that? So the US economy becomes as strong as it can be running on all cylinders rather than half as many cylinders, which is what we've got now. And decisions being made by people who don't who aren't as good making decisions for everybody as, as some more diverse leadership structure would be. I'm trying to say this without saying anything that's politically unpopular. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. We're unapologetic on this podcast. Public figures have made white supremacy be okay to say terrible things about Jews and Hispanics in particular and misogyny. This has to change. It's not in America's interest to keep going the way we've been going. We've got to be more inclusive. We've got to be more aware of the assets we can draw on in this culture. And then how do you get the most out of them? When you talked about just a second ago, the odds being stacked against some of these different minority groups, can you talk a little bit more about what some of these odds are for some of our listeners, procurement leaders who may not and category managers who may not really understand this and some of the naysayers around supplier diversity. They just, because it's not their reality. Yeah. Well, you can't see me, but I'm a white guy. Okay. <laughs> That's the perspective that I take. I'm a privileged white male that's always had the wind at his back. Yes, I work very hard, but the odds have always been in my favor that if I work really hard, I'm going to succeed because I'm a white guy British origin. It's a good thing to have in America right now. Okay. So you look at some other people that have been excluded from the economy. And why does that happen? Let, let me go back to my job as a purchasing agent years ago. So I've been an entrepreneur, but I've also been a purchasing agent. So I've seen both sides of this happen. And 
the purchasing agent, it's not as clear a meritocracy as the theory would suggest. As a purchasing agent, you're held accountable for the decisions you make, and it's not in your interest as a purchasing agent to take risks. So if I have the good old boys, a middle-aged white supplier, and he's been doing business with the company for several years, if I switch over to a woman or a minority or a a disabled person or somebody from the LGBT community or, or whoever, Native American, and something goes wrong, a small hiccup, all the spotlight is on me to say, how come you went from a perfectly stable supplier to taking a risk with our source of supply? So it's not that I'm prejudiced, but corporate reward systems value me sticking with the good old boys, as it were, the people who in the past have served the organization well. And for me to take a chance you, Chloe, or you, Matt, uh, as not being middle-aged white males is a risk to my career in corporate America. So, I mean, that is a bias that makes it partly uphill, kind of structural. Now, what you've got operating against that is the world is changing. Remember, I'm, I'm a baby boomer. I'm, that's my generation. And the world is changing around us. And if you look at young people, the the people who are going to be corporate leaders, they don't discriminate against LGBTQ. They don't discriminate against black, black people. They don't discriminate against women. They don't discriminate against Hispanic or anybody else. It's just not in, in, in their head the way it was in the, the 60s and 70s, where you had white males dominating everything. Okay. Tomorrow's leaders are quite different. What's interesting is, and I talk to corporate leaders about this, is if you want to attract people to your community, and your community is racist, white, male, supremacist community, and there are plenty of them in this country, people are not going to want to work there that you most need to be your knowledge workers. So there's a number of reasons to you know, we're talking about the talent gap now. The, the One of the hardest things for companies right now is to fill their pipelines of employees so that when the baby boomers retire, we're going to replace them with highly qualified younger people who are more recently educated. They're hot shots. They've got lots of energy, lots of drive, and they're not going to put up with traditional discrimination, whatever value system it arose out of. Mm-hmm. That's not what we got for tomorrow's workers. Are there examples that you've come across in your work of companies doing it right, where where procurement professionals, purchasing agents are properly incentivized to create, to take the risks, or at least to take perceived risks, right? Because it may not actually be more risky to contract with a minority supplier, but are there companies doing it right? Yes. And I've got to be careful what I say here. Uh, I'll use a, okay, in Fortune 500, okay, you, there ought to be 500 companies that vested in the future of their organization. So they, they need a diverse supply chain. 
They need all sorts of protections in case there's any kind of supply chain disruption. We've seen that with yeah. COVID. How, if you're not careful, you can grind a company down to a, a standstill because of your supply chain. It has nothing to do with you. It's the supply chain. So you've got to think through at the supply chain level, what do you got going on? Now, companies that are doing it right are in short supply. Uh, of the Fortune 500 companies, you don't have 500 exemplary companies. You may have, I'm afraid to say this, you may have a dozen, but that may be optimistic. What do you feel like it is that they're doing right? When, when they're getting it right, what, what, are the, what are the markers of that? Matt, to do it right, you have to say, how am I going to encourage the entry into this market and success into this market of people who haven't been in this market all their lives. Now, there are certain entrepreneurial cultures, and ones I know quite a bit about is like Jewish people in the, the garment district of New York or, or Cuban-Americans, South Florida, or people from the islands, the Caribbean, that have come to the United States. Those are entrepreneurial cultures. So when they go to a family gathering or if they have dinner with some somebody or they hang out with neighbors, they're hearing entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship. Here's what I did. Here's where I screwed up. Here's what I should have done. And if you've been hearing that since you've been like eight years old, by the time you're a young adult, you're steeped in the wisdom of what it means to be an entrepreneur in the U.S. economy. You learn all of that stuff. But what if you were brought up as an agricultural worker from Mexico uh, or got out of the deep south with slave grandparents or great-grandparents or earlier generations is what I'm trying to say. And then you come to a northern city when southern agriculture shut down and slavery was abandoned in this country. You don't have that entrepreneurial background. So how are we going to teach you the things you need to know? Exercise judgment. Now, there's two things going on here. One is relationships. If you look at complex purchasing, it's not done by just looking at what are the universe of suppliers, let me pick one. It's a comfort level between the purchasing agent and the person who he or she is talking to. So if it's somebody who is quite different from me and I only like to deal with the good old boys, you're out of luck trying to do business with me. Okay, the problem is, is the relationship problem. And some of these deals are made, big purchasing deals. And, you know, I guess I could talk about the sectors that are most likely to do this, like legal and commercial real estate and construction. And there's some others, treasury. Uh, it's mostly, are you hanging out with the people who could be your suppliers? And if you're a woman or you're a minority, you're not allowed to be in that golf club or in that country club or hang out in the place. Naturally, get a comfortable relationship going on. So, I mean, that's 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 part of it. But let me go back to, to Matt's specific question. Companies that are doing it right. I've worked with two of them quite literally multiple companies. Two of them I can talk about. One is Mass Mutual. It's a very large insurance company. And what they've done is they're working really hard to develop potential suppliers, not just say who's out there that's already of scale and is up to speed and has already got all these things. 
But who traditionally has been held down and not given a chance at bat? How are we going to give them the education they didn't get because they weren't brought up in an entrepreneurial culture? And they didn't go to business school. Uh, they didn't go to an entre entrepreneurship program because they're not in an income bracket that would make that easy. So what Mass Mutual does is it recruits entrepreneurs who are successful as mentors and pairs that with an educational program that people otherwise would have lacked. So they get to talk to people just like them that have been through the same challenges and they've made it. So what was the difference? What was it you wish you knew now that you only learned the hard way? So Mass Mutual is one. IBM has always been good with minorities and women and people who are different from the mainstream. They've got a mentor-protege program that's very sophisticated. Clark Construction it is actually walking the walk on a number of things. So women and minorities traditionally have been excluded from the construction industry. And it's been an industry that's been dominated by people who look like me, white males, okay, and middle-aged and the, the, the whole nine yards. But there isn't a reason why a woman or a minority or an LGBTQ community member or a veteran can't be as good a construction supplier as any middle-aged white guy. I mean, there isn't a logical reason for it, for this. So what Clark Construction is doing, it says, well, we're a big com company. They're based in Washington, D.C. We're a big company. We have internal training programs for all our people. So why don't we make those available to all our suppliers? If we want our in-source people to be that good, why wouldn't we want our outsource people? It doesn't cost us anything. We're running the classes anyway. So why not do that for them? And they're doing that. So they're pairing that with teaching people what they need to know and then saying, you can sit in on all the classes we provide to our own employees and you get the same knowledge they get. How do you cost jobs? What are the avoid lawsuits that can sink people? How do you get the financing? All of that is, is industry-specific knowledge that the existing power in the construction industry tries to keep for itself. You know, I wanted to talk a little bit more deeply about the work that you're doing with Native Americans. Can you tell us a little bit more about that specific work that you're doing? First, Native Americans are not minorities. We never call right. them minorities. We never do. Right. Native Americans were here long before the European invasion and colonization of the United States. This is their land. It's their land I'm sitting on right now as I make this recording. Two sets of things go on in, in the Native communities. The tribally owned businesses, like a casino, for example, are run by the tribe. And the problem with that is anytime you get a group of politicians, which would be a tribal council, making business decisions, they're going to make decisions that make sense for them as politicians. If you're a business person, you're going to make business sense with the resources you have, the customer base, the building, the employees, the, the value proposition. That's different. So if it's tribally owned enterprise, the decisions, it distorted a little, 
little bit by tribal politics, unless there is a separate business board that, that is not beholden to, except for results, to tribal politics. You should be hiring my son to do this. Well, we fired him because he didn't show up at the job. I don't care. Give him his job back. I mean, I hear things like that a lot in, in Native American reservations. You have to have a layer of separation if it's tribally owned. If it's individually owned, Native Americans have been excluded from the mainstream and put on reservations so that the land can be made available to people like me, white settlers. And they're just as in the dark as minorities and women in terms of an entrepreneurial tradition. So my job is to make up the lost ground and to even the playing field so that if you're an individual Native American entrepreneur, you can go head to head with somebody who traditionally has been running business or an industry. So it's complicated. And here's the other thing that goes on in, in Indian country. I was an Obama appointee for Native Americans, and I was on a board that determined how Native American assets get utilized. And the difficulty of that role is I'm a white guy coming in to say, let me help you. And they say, well, we've been hearing that for 400 years. And all the white guys that have come in have ripped us off. And they said they're trying to help us. They take all our assets away. I mean, what kind of help is that? So part of it is establishing credibility. And I really am here to help you. I'm going to give you all my expertise. I'm going to give you all the help you want and put you on a path to to getting out of this casino-dominated economic system on a reservation. That's terrible for a number of reasons, but let me not go into that. So that's the Native American part of it. How did it arise? I was doing a lot of work with minorities and women started to approach me to say, look, I'm a white woman. I got the same challenges. I get excluded from the action because I'm a woman. Can you help us? And that's how the tech school, we designed a program for WeBank and all its, its women that has been very successful, but there was nothing for Native Americans. So after I program for women, I said, I went to the Department of Interior and said, look, this is what we're doing for minorities, but we're not doing anything for Native Americans who need inclusion into the U.S. economic system. Nobody at Interior disagreed with that. And they said, well, can you do it? Yeah, I can do it. That's how it started. And I happen to be the the guy who's been on both sides. I've been an entrepreneur. I've been a purchasing manager. I've been a public sector person. And I've been an educator. So I'm kind of one of these guys that can go to an audience and have some credibility. It is what it is. And that's what I've done for all of my career is to help not the super privileged. I can do that too. And if you want a lot of consulting income, you go down to Wall Street and do a gig. But that's not very satisfying. If you can help a minority business that's struggling or a woman-owned business or a native-owned business that's being discriminated against, and you can get them into a first contract and you can work with a purchasing agent to say, look, they did a really good job for you. Can you recommend to some of your buddies in the purchasing industry, this is a really good supplier. They ought to give them a chance to shine. That's kind of how it goes. And it's not as clear a meritocracy supply chain as you think it ought to be. And a lot of it is purchasing agents basically putting their jobs on the line to say, yeah, we've got a higher purpose here is to be more inclusive. So how do you do that? Well, they've got to be successful. Otherwise, the purchasing agent is in career danger. So I make them successful, I guess, is the way I look at it. 
I just listening to you and just in awe, which is hence my pause now. Um, but I want to hear more about, can you tell us a little bit about the, the program that you guys have at Tux for some of these suppliers to go through? Because this, it's a unique program. I know other institutions have tried to, to come up with something similar, but this has been the program that you, you've been running has been so successful. Can you tell us a little bit about the program and what do you feel like has led to the success of it and so many suppliers, minority suppliers going through it. Yeah. What we do at the Tech School, the Tech School is a, a really good school. It is very demanding of its faculty in, in terms of being real leaders in their field. So I can get the best and the brightest of our faculty to teach in the programs. And not everybody can do that. But I if, if their values align with what we're trying to do as a, as a program, then they become team members and we do continuous learning. I mean, we've got close to 9,000 graduates of our program, which is very big. I think it's the biggest program of, of its kind in the world. Uh, but uh, I get the same faculty each time there's a program. If I didn't invite them to participate, I'd have a conflict on my hands. They'd say, wait a minute, what about me? I want to do that. So uh, the faculty quality is something, if, if you get people that are really highly dedicated to the success of minority and women-owned business, you can do a lot more than people who just think it's a gig. So that's part of what goes on. But here's the part that's in some sense more important than this that other schools don't do. We've had thousands of people come through the program. And because we're an Ivy League institution and we have a tremendous emphasis on research, generating knowledge as well as using knowledge, passing it on. So we did a lot of research with this demographic group. We did it with minorities. We did it again with women who were about 90% white women but they were entrepreneurs. Um, and that's just, it's another issue in the diverse community. But we did research to say, what things hold you back and what things make you successful? And if you do that with thousands of people who are entrepreneurs, you come up with patterns in the data. And what I'd heard from public officials in Washington and corporate types too, is the big problems are access to capital and access to contracts, market opportunities. So conducted research on this and thought that was going to be number one and number two, and it's not. What holds people back? The, the number one factor that holds people back is lack of strategic direction. So if you ask somebody, what business are you in? They'll say, well, I kind of do this and this and this, whatever makes money. That's not a strategy. That's an aspiration. I'd like to make money and I'll do whatever is necessary to do that. So if you've got a strategy, it says, here's where we're headed. Here's the market we've chosen to serve. Here's our value proposition. Here's why you should do business with us. Here are the competitors. We compete on the basis of of cost, quality, delivery, or flexibility, but not all of those things. And that's what a strategy is. How are you going to get into a market and stay there? The number two problem we thought was going to be access to capital, and it's not. It turned out to be 
how do you hold on to a workforce when they have, if they're any good, they have terrific opportunities on the outside of your business and they're going to get stolen from you. What, what's going to keep them working for you? Okay. That's the number two issue. They can't hold on to people. And this is even before COVID and the crazy workforce issues we've got now of supply and demand being out of whack. So, so number three wasn't access to capital, which is an issue for minority and women-owned business. It was cash flow management. Companies are stretching out the payment terms to minority and, and women-owned businesses. But you've got to pay at the beginning of the month. You've got, to, you've got to pay your heat, light. You've got to pay rent. You've got to pay your workers. You've got to pay all of these things, insurance. And then you, get, you do the work and you get paid if you're lucky 30 days after the work is completed. But it's, it's not 30 days anymore. It's now 60 days or 90 days or 120 days. I've heard all of this from my diverse companies that I work with. So cash flow is number three. So anyway, answer your question, what's the magic of the program is we say, okay, these are the problems that people are facing. How are we going to teach them? Here's how to address all of the big problems that everybody. So it's research-based, it's needs-based. What other schools do, I've talked to friends at other schools, which I'd like to remain nameless if you don't mind. They don't have the luxury that I have having colleagues that are highly committed to this. Uh, And what they do is they treat it like just another executive education program and say, what do you have that's, they say to a professor, hey, I need a Thursday afternoon speaker between three and 4.30. Do you have any cases that are particularly uh, entertaining? And that becomes the program. It doesn't have an end, not all interconnected. But when we do it, everything is interconnected. We have faculty meetings and people say things like, Hey, I'm going to be talking about this, but they've got to have the foundation in economics before I get into the marketing. For example, can you be sure you cover this and this the day before I come on because I'm going to tap into you? And then when we've got the marketing thing sorted out, we go to the operations guy who says, okay, what has been taught to people? Have you taught them this and this? Because now I can tell them how to fulfill the promise you've made to your customers. So highly interconnected when we do a tech program and it's research-based. It's their problems, their challenges that we address directly. So that, that's how we do it. That's that's really the magic. And we've been doing it. My first program was 1980, before you two were probably born. Yes, yes, yes. It has been. It's 40 years of continuous improvement we've been doing on the program. That's why you know, I've, I've been part of public policy. I've been, I got awards from all the major organizations, NMSDC and all the rest of these guys, about every award you can get. So people know the tuck school is the thing. They know it's kind of the Rolls Royce program, but you got to spend a week on campus there. And Dartmouth College is in New Hampshire. So if you're a city slicker, this is not New York City. It's not Chicago. It's not Atlanta. So you've got to be prepared to be in paradise, a, a rural school, basically. Listen, I button and take names school. It's, we don't fool around, but we do it right. I love that. I love that. Before we wrap up, I just want to to get two last things from you. You know, if you could give any advice to purchasing managers, what would that advice be? And on the flip side, 
for our minority-owned businesses and Native American-owned businesses, what advice would you give to them at this juncture, where we are just in our economy, where we are just the state of the world? Okay. The purchasing agents, uh, they're actually supply chain managers or Right. We've got a lot of different leaders. Yes. Supplier diversity professionals. Yes. A lot of different. So excuse the vocabulary. Let me just call them purchasing managers for now to for simplicity. But they need to realize that if you look at the present, it's not a reflection of the past and it's not a prediction of the future. So if you're thinking about what's your supply chain going to look like in five years, it's not what it looked like five years ago. We've got all these markets are changing, geopolitical things are changing, technology is changing, people's tastes are changing, value systems are changing, particularly among the younger generation. So if you're a purchasing manager, you got to look ahead. What, what is coming down the pike that I need to adapt to for my company to be as good as it can be? And outsourcing is strategic, not tactical is what I'd say to the purchasing agents. And now for the MBEs and WBEs and service-disabled veterans and LGBTQ members, what I'd say to them is, look, your journey is uphill. You don't have the wind at your back the way I have had it. So if your journey's uphill, you've got to have your act together as a business. You can't expect people to be philanthropic and excuse a lot of your underperformance. You're playing in in the big playing field, and those are the rules, and these are the competitors. You've got to be as good as they are. Otherwise, you're putting a burden on the purchasing department to take a chance on you. Why should they take a chance? It's a chance that may ruin their career. Give them the quality they want. Give them the dependability. Give them the assurance that you can do what you said you can do. Don't try to sell them something you can't deliver on. Get your act together as a business. And that means you've got to, got to be very careful about your staffing, your financing, your marketing, your operations, your, your leadership style, all the things we cover. And think about a growth trajectory. How are you going to grow? What's A lot of people have no idea what they're going to do next year. And some people say to me, well, I don't know. I'll think about that later. Well, you don't think about, are you going to give this business to your kids? Kids usually don't want to take over a parent's business, particularly if they felt abandoned by an entrepreneur. <laughs> that won't go, but entrepreneurs know what I'm talking about. And you're going to sell a business? What do you have to do to sell a business? How do you maximize its sales appeal? Are you going to partner with somebody else so that you get the effects of scale without having the expenses of scaling up and the risks of scaling up? That's what I say to this set of people. Public policy, I don't know what I'd say right now to public policy. I've tried and we're in bad era of the United States. It's like we've lost our direction of what it means to be a democracy and what it means to be inclusive. The American dream is for everybody. It's not for middle-aged white males. It's, it's for everybody. Why are we not living up to our own values as a country? That's what I do. That's what I say to people. It's That's what keeps me going. That's why I've been doing this for 40 years, 42 years, actually. I need to keep it going. It's my mission in life. Well, thank you so much for all that you have done. I mean, I, for one, can say that you were one of many, but one of a driving force in, in why I'm here today. So the work that you've done definitely inspired me. 
So thank you so much for the work. Thank you, Chloe. And thank you, Matt, for the work you two do. This is good. We, we need to we, we need to change the world around us. It's not a big deal to do it, but it's necessary. And it's coming. You gotta get you gotta get people to step out of the way of progress. And that's really what's happening in this country. So thank you very much for the opportunity to participate in your podcast. Yes. So thank you again so much for coming on the show. Be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, check out our previous shows, and stay tuned for next time. Thank you for listening to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. We are grateful for the time you spend with us in participating in these conversations. Please review and rate and share our show as we are focused on growing awareness in the supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity space. If you'd like more information, please visit us at higherground.io. That's H-I-R-E ground dot I-O. Thank you for being here and we look forward to seeing you next week.